Okay, so it's good to be together. And as we begin our time together, I would just like to say a few things about sermon series is. Sermon series is, yes, plural. To talk first about the one we just finished, and then to spend the rest of our time talking about the one we're starting today. So the one that we just finished was on the church. For eight weeks, I shared with you the biblical vision that we have for being a church in Grand Rapids. Trinity's vision of being a church. And it feels as though in so many ways that that sermon series was in our sweet spots. It was in our wheelhouse. It was good for all of you because many of us are wrestling with what does it mean for us to be the church here and now from the Bible. It's a good conversation for us as well because right now the church in America is pumping out books after books, resources, all kinds on what does it mean to be the church. So us here in Grand Rapids, the larger church in America, and even me, myself, and I, yes, I am someone who's committed the last eight to ten years studying the biblical perspective of the church with some of the leading theologians in America trying to wrestle with biblical texts. So for all of us, this sermon series has been in our sweet spot. If we were playing baseball, here's our chance to swing for the fences because studying the church in the scriptures is fun. Now let's talk about the sermon series we are about to step in today. Yes, the sermon series we're going to step in today is lesser known. Uh, I hear uh, the passages of the Old Testament that we're going to look at the next 12 weeks come off your tongues far less than we talk about the church. Uh, It's lesser known in the larger church in America. Uh, As I was preparing for our time today and the next 12 weeks, I found far less resources on these books of the Bible in the Old Testament than I could have on books like Isaiah or Jeremiah or even Ezekiel. In my own life, me, myself, and I, again, talking weirdly about myself, I know less about these parts of the Bible. If we were to collectively play baseball with this chunk of Scripture, our hope is not to necessarily swing for the fences, but we're just trying to make contact because we know less about this portion of Scripture than we do about things like the church. Today we're going to start a sermon series on the minor prophets. The minor prophets, those last 12 books of the Old Testament, those weird-sounding names like Haggai, Habakkuk, Nahum, Hosea. Yes, we're going to spend the next 12 weeks working through those last 12 books of the Bible that are lesser known not just to us, the larger churching America, even in my own life, because we as Christians here in Grand Rapids are a group of people that desperately want to hear God speak. We want to look at these passages of Scripture in the minor prophets, and we want to hear God speak through those minor prophets, not just the way that he spoke thousands of years ago, we want to hear him speak today. 
We want to hear God speak through the minor prophets as great preachers like Dr. Martin Luther King preached years ago from these minor prophets so that people in America could hear God speak out against injustice. Yes, we are the kind of church in Grand Rapids that yearns to hear God speak in fresh ways. And so we are going to spend the next 12 weeks of our time together hearing him speak through these lesser known books of the Bible. Now, the way that we'll get started today is we need some background. We need to better understand these lesser known books of the Bible. So let's just spend a few moments together talking about those books of the Bible, the minor prophets, and then how do they fit historically. So who they are, and let's situate them historically in the Bible. Good plan? All right, good plan. Here we go. They're called the minor prophets because the books are short. Okay, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel are often called the major prophets because the books are longer. But the minor prophets are called the minor prophets because the books are shorter. That's it. Uh, in the Hebrew canon, uh, going back thousands of years, many times these 12 books of the Bible are on one scroll called the Twelve. And many times they're all kind of lumped together, almost like an appendix to the Bible that we don't really need to look at because they're lesser known. That's who they are. Now let's situate them historically. And the best way for us to do this is to talk about the history of Israel. They're prophets in Israel's history. They're in the Old Testament. So let's spend just a few minutes getting nerdy. Okay, let's get nerdy for a moment. You like being nerdy, don't you? It's in the zeitgeist now. We're cool. Us nerds are cool now. Okay, here we go. Israel's history truly begins in the book of Exodus. There's this wonderful moment just after God went into Egypt and rescued these slaves out of the Egyptian empire, pulled them out of bondage, and he's leading them to a promised land. God has this very clear and powerful moment in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, when he looks at those Israelites, these former slaves, he looks at them and he says, you are my treasured possession." I will make you a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And the way that I will do this is through this thing called a covenant. A covenant is just a formal way of talking about a relationship between a person, another person, parties, and two parties. It's a formal way of talking about a relationship that is deeply devoted. God is saying to those former slaves, now treasured position, I want to be your God. I am deeply devoted to you. You are my people. I will protect you. I will provide for you. You can trust me. I am the faithful, chesed God. I will be there when skies are gray and when things are wonderful because you are my people. And in response, those people, the Israelites, could just say yes. They had the free will to say, yes, we want to be your people. And the way that they were supposed to live into this relationship, not religion, relationship is through these things called commandments, which get a terrible rap. They're not rules or obligations. They're expectations for being in relationship, right? 
You're married. You know that in marriage, it's important to say, hey, this is what it means for me to be your husband. Here's the expectations. Or how about best friends, BFFs? If you have a best friend, there are some expectations of what it means to be in that relationship. Colleagues at work, whatever. To be in a devoted relationship, there needs to be expectations. The first two expectations were this. You shall have no other gods but me. You will not make images with your hands that reflect things on earth or in heaven or worship those things, but you are only to worship me. The first two commandments are all about the relationship that God wants to have with His people. Okay, that's the starting point. And the most important part of ancient Israelite history is this idea of covenant or relationship. I will go so far to say this. This is the gospel of the Old Testament. This is the good news of God choosing a group of people to be in relationship for so they can be a light to the nations. Let's move along historically, shall we? Here they are, desert God makes this relationship formal. They say, yes, we'll be loyal and love you too, God, with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And they move into their promised land, Israel. And then they're in their promised land. They start to flourish. They have a kingdom. They have kings like David and Solomon and others. But it doesn't take very long for that to fall apart. Yes, they had an internal civil war. Uh, after Solomon dies, there's this battle that takes place for power. It's always power and it's always guys. Sorry. But the thing happens and a civil war breaks out and then there's two kingdoms of these Hebrew people. North and South. They exist side by side, warring. Uh, they don't like each other very much. But then the northern kingdom completely collapses. This group of people called the Assyrians come in and completely topple the northern kingdom. They're done. The southern kingdom goes on for another 170 years or so, and then the Babylonians come along and then wipe them out too. That's the history we need to pay attention to is first the covenant, the relationship that God has with His people. Don't worship any other gods. And then moving along, division, and then end. Here's where the minor prophets fit. The minor prophets were called by God to deliver messages of indictment. You're worshiping other gods. You're giving your heart away. Don't ever do that again. Judgment, bad things are coming, future hope. It'll get better. The minor prophets are commissioned by God near the end of the north and the southern kingdoms. They start here. They continue during this season of the thing ending. And then they continue after the whole thing collapses. So minor prophets are chosen by God to speak messages to His people before, during the end, and after the end. This is where they exist in ancient Israel history. All along, the whole time, minor prophets are continually speaking messages that go all the way back to the deep, devoted relationship that God wants to have with His people that He yearns that they will have with Him. Got it? Sound good? Whew. Okay, that was a lot of history in like a minute. So let's talk about our first book, Hosea. First book of the Minor Prophets is the prophet Hosea. We're going to work through these things sequentially over the next 12 weeks. 
And Hosea is a prophet chosen by God to speak a message to the northern kingdom. The way that we'll structure our time is simple. We're going to first look at the message that God wants to speak to his people. Then we'll spend time looking at Israel's response to God's message. I'll just tell you right now, it was foolish. And then we're going to end our time with the proper response that they should have to the God who yearns to be with his people. Okay, message, bad response, good response. I'd like to invite you to stand as you are able as I read to you the message God wants to speak to the ancient Israelites, the same message he wants to speak to us today. Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Hosea 1, 1 through 11. If that's not right, don't look at it. Look at me. Look at me. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Hosea 1, 1 through 11. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. Stop right there for just a moment. Hosea has been raised up to be a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam, Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. We get that right there. Okay, continue on. Chapter, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel, northern kingdom. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lorumah which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, southern kingdom, and I will save them not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lorumah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Amai, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Verse 10. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Friends, you may be seated. God has a direct, he's east coast in this message to the Israelites through Hosea. It's a direct message. So let's narrow down the key point of the message God spoke through this prophet. The key point is an indictment. It's right there, I believe, in verse 2, where it says, where God says this, you are guilty of unbelief. Faithfulness. Israel, Northern Kingdom, you are guilty of giving your heart away to other gods. Remember the covenant. 
No other gods. Don't make any other gods. Me and me alone. But now they are unfaithful and giving their hearts away to other gods. This is the indictment that God is speaking directly to His people. And here's something profound. Hosea wasn't just supposed to stand at the city gate and say, hey everybody, I need you to listen to me now. I got a message from the Lord. No, he was actually supposed to live this thing out. It's called an enacted prophecy. Enacted prophecies are when a prophet is chosen by God to deliver a message, and that prophet doesn't just say it with their mouths. The prophet actually lives the prophecy out. So when people want to hear the message of being guilty of unfaithfulness, they don't just have to hear someone preach a sermon from high and lift it up. They can see it with their very own eyes because God had called Hosea to marry a woman named Gomer who was unfaithful. God told Hosea, marry this woman to show the people, my people, what they are doing to me. They are being unfaithful. Just like this woman was unfaithful to another man, they are being unfaithful in their devotion to me in relationship. Sidebar. Sidebars are rabbit trails. We need a rabbit trail for just a moment. We need to be very careful with these kinds of metaphors Because many times in church history, Hosea has been used to say this. Hear what I'm saying. There's proof that the only way to live a good life is to be married. That the book of Hosea is all about marriage for some people. It's not about marriage. It is not about marriage. The book of Hosea is God speaking to his people saying, you are unfaithful. The marriage is just a metaphor to show the message It's not about being married. And the reason why I bring this up is God has chosen some of us in this room and people throughout the world in all time of church history to be single. And singleness is just as worthy as being married. I say this because when I was single before I met this wonderful woman, I really thought I was called to singleness, just like Paul said. This is a great way to live the life. But every time I went to a wedding or hung out with Christians, there was all this weird pressure like, what's wrong with you, man? Where's your wife? I'm like, I don't know. I'm supposed to be married. I'm just going to keep reading the Bible and do what God says. I'll marry a book. I don't care. But there's all this weird pressure. Yeah, my friend said I was going to marry a book. They'd buy me books for my birthday and say, here, here's your bride. But nonetheless, (laughs) it's a true story. (laughs) Uh, But nonetheless, we have to be careful in the minor prophets not to make these metaphors, these enacted ways of delivering a message, something concrete to hold expectations to people that were never intended to be used that way. So we got to be careful with that because if you're called to be single, our job is to do all that we can to support you in your singleness to make Jesus known. The church needs to apologize for that. Okay, sidebar over. Rabbit trail is now left. We're back on the primary trail up the mountain. Metaphor. We're not climbing a mountain. Okay, so that was the way that God wanted to deliver the message of unfaithfulness. It's not just by word, but by action. And then the wonderful thing about metaphors is there's ways of showing the outcome of the indictment, of the sin, of the unfaithfulness. And in chapter 1, there is these clear ways of showing what it looks like or the outcome of their unfaithfulness, of giving their heart away to other gods, will lead to these children. 
Hosea and Gomer have three children. Each one is named in such a way to be a part of the prophecy. Of course, we would never want to name our kids uh, punishments, but that's what this is all about. Um, But here's the way that works out. The first child, Jezreel, means to sow. Farming, right? It's to sow, to do crops, to sow a plentiful. And in this field or this valley referenced Jezreel, it was a fertile field where lots of things grew really well. But it's also the same field where many times battles were fought and blood was spilled. The metaphor here is Jezreel means Israel, because of your unfaithfulness, you are going to sow pain. You are going to sow or pay the price for your unfaithfulness to me with blood. Not good. Uh, Let's continue. The second child, Lo Ruhamah, that is the way of talking about not pitied, not compassioned, not chesed, loyal love. God is saying to the people of Israel, I am removing my compassion from you. God has been compassionate for the hundreds of years going all the way back to the covenant in the book of Exodus. Many times the Israelites worshipped other gods. They did the wrong things. But many times God continued to pity them, have compassion on them, so he protected and provided for them. But no more. That day is done. Third, lo am I. Lo am I. Not my people. Exodus 19 is all about how God chooses the Israelites to be his people, his treasured possession. God is saying, you are not my people anymore. The unfaithfulness of Israel, giving their hearts away to other gods, is leading to sowing lots of pain, losing the compassion from God, and then lastly, being removed as his very own people. Now, we could continue to finish up chapter 1, but we're not going to. We don't have the time, but you notice there is some future hope there, right? Someday this will be corrected. Let's save that for the end. And right now, let's continue to dig in into this idea of unfaithfulness, giving a heart away to other gods. The Israelites gave their hearts away to many gods, but the primary god that they gave their heart away was a god named Baal. Baal. It's mentioned many times in Hosea and throughout the Old Testament. Baal was an attractive god for the Israelites because many of the Israelites were rural farmers. And Baal was a god who was a god of fertility and rain. So if you're a farmer, you want lots of kids to work those fields, right? So you're like going to Baal, please God, give me more kids. And as a farmer, you would want rain, right? Like you want rain to hit those crops just the right amount so those crops will grow. So many of the rural Israelites gave themselves unfaithfully to Baal, yearning for Baal to care for them in their fields. The urban Israelites liked Baal because worshiping Baal, that's a fun party. I can't dance, so I won't. But the problem was many of those urban Israelites danced just a little too close, if you know what I mean. That was a wink. 
Baal was incredibly popular among the Israelites for those reasons and probably a whole bunch more. And instead of spending our time talking more about Baal or this idea of unfaithfulness, the more helpful thing for us to do today is to talk about where do we as Christians in 2018 give our hearts away to other gods? We have to answer this question because if we believe that God still chooses to speak to us through the pages of this book, the Bible, the inspired Word of God, then we must answer the question, where do we, yes, we as good and faithful Christians here at Trinity Mission Church, and even those of you who are here today that may not be Christians at all, where are we giving our hearts away to some other God? I spent a whole bunch of time thinking about this week and praying, and there's lots of ways to answer this question, but here's a way that I think will resonate for all of us. It resonates for me. This is where I typically give my heart away to some other God. It's not Baal or some other craven image. It's this thing called complacency. Complacency. Complacency is that thing, that God, if you will, in which I and all of us are willing to settle for less than. Complacency is a willingness to settle for less than God has for us. As Christians, we were meant to live in relationship with God. God is 100% consistent all the way back to Exodus. He yearns to be in relationship with His people. And the relationship that He has with all of us is one in which He sends us out to tell others the good news. He wants to be in relationship with them. But sadly, many times we good Christians who love the Bible, who love Jesus, who love community, will many times settle for less than what God has for us to be on his mission to save the world. And the outcome produces something. It absolutely does. Instead of Jezreel, it produces comfort is so cozy. Right? Think about it. If we're complacent, being unfaithful in our relationship by settling for less, then what we settle for is the couch. It's so comfortable to sit here and not engage in the mission of God. Uh, Let's continue with what this births out of us. It also births this other thing. The bar is too low. Yes, many times as Christians, I'm saying this to myself. Please know that. I've wrestled this all week long. Many times I will set the bar way too low for what God has called me to do. Here's the best example I can show you this. It's altar call kind of Christianity. Now, sidebar, I became a Christian in an altar call, so I love them. I think they're used by God in really beautiful ways. But the downfall, the sin, I'll just say it what it is, of altar call Christianity is we set the bar too low by saying, if you say yes to Jesus Christ right here, then you're good enough. You've achieved the minimum requirements to get into heaven. We can never set the bar too low because Jesus looks at all of us. He says, pick up a cross and follow where I go. It bursts at least one more thing, and that is too many things. Uh, The mission of God, you look out at the world, you see brokenness all over. I saw an immigrant being bullied by a jerk the other day, and I almost got into a fight with him for picking on this poor little guy. Shouldn't have said that. But there's so much need, there's so much parts of this redemption that's not the way it's supposed to be. 
And God is calling us to be individually and as a community, His church, His bride, His beautiful people, to be a part of His fix of this brokenness, to save this broken creation. And many times we see all these things that God wants to do and is doing, and instead of joining in that, we get overwhelmed and incapacitated and choose to say no to it. We settle for less than what God has for us. And if we become a church that becomes complacent, this happens. It happens all the time. It happens in my own life. I'm saying this to myself. If we settle for complacency as a church, it will affect the way that we gather on Sunday. It absolutely will. Instead of being rallied to go into the great world that God has created for us to be a part of, many times what ends up happening is we become a place that serves and seeks out comfort and security. We, serve, we seek out being fed We look more inward than outward as a church, which is not what God has intended for us. There's a philosopher that I really enjoy reading. His name is Soren Kierkegaard. He's Danish. Uh, He was also a pastor, and he recognized the same tendency in Christians a long time ago, the way that he recognizes, we should recognize today. And Soren was a brilliant writer who wrote a lot of parodies. Parodies are a way of talking about something in metaphor that you have to make the connection to. And so he wrote this really powerful parody called The Tame Geese. The Tame Geese. And The Tame Geese is all about how there's a group of geese who choose to live in a barnyard. Yes, they live in a barn. And they never leave for years and years and years. They stay in the barnyard. And the reason why they stay in the barnyard is they know that they can be well protected by its fortified walls. And they'll always have enough food to eat. The farmer will bring the corn in for them to eat. But the problem with geese who choose to be stationary in a barn is geese were made to fly. Those annoying sounds they make as they go squawking by us and hundreds and thousands of them. That's what geese were made to do. They were made to fly. But when they became complacent, they chose to live in a barnyard. Well then, Kierkegaard says, a preacher, or he calls philosopher, remember it's all about parody, comes to the geese in the barnyard and starts to deliver sermons. Sermons on what it means to be a goose. And how a goose is not meant to live in a barnyard, but how a goose is meant to fly. And he preaches these sermons week in and week out. And they're powerful and they're eloquent. Let me just read to you what Soren says. These geese thought this was a fine preaching. How poetical, they thought. How profoundly existential. What a flawless summary of the mystery of existence. Often, the preacher spoke of the advantages of the flight, calling on the geese to be what they were. After all, they had wings, he pointed out. What were wings for but to fly with? Often, he reflected on the beauty and the wonder of life outside the barnyard and the freedom of the skies. Here's where it becomes more clear for us to hear. And every week or Sunday, the geese were uplifted, inspired, moved by the preacher's message. They hung on his every word. They devoted hours, weeks, months to a thoroughgoing analysis and critical evaluation of his doctrines. They produced learned treatises and essays on the ethical and spiritual implications of flight. All this they did, but the one thing they never did They did not fly, for the corn was good and the barnyard was secure.
Kierkegaard recognizes the same way we should recognize today. There's always this temptation for all of us as individuals and as a community to become literally unfaithful to the God of mission and choose settling for less than he has made us for. We were made to fly. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What did Israel need to do next? What response should they have to this indictment, this judgment, this clear speaking of God to his people a long time ago? In the same way, what should we do as we hear God speak to us today? Well, let's return to our passage. Uh, Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. we see one of the ways that Israel chose to respond to God's message. Right there, 4 through 6. What can I do with you, Ephraim? That's northern Israel. What can I do with you, Judah, southern Israel? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun, Listen to this, for I desire mercy, chesed, loyal love, not sacrifice and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I'll stop right there. The first way that Israel chose to respond to God's clear message was they tried to lean on religion. They tried to go back to religious obligations. Remember, God doesn't want religion, he wants relationship. So they fell back on these sacrifices and burnt offerings, which are not really all bad, right? Those are a part of the way that Israel was meant to worship, to express their devotion upward to God, was through sacrifices and these burnt offerings. But instead of using it as a way to express their deep love for God, they chose to do it as a lucky charm, as superstition, as a way to try to fix the problem of their relationship that's being broken with God. And the thing that God says about this religious option is he says it's like the dew in the morning. The dew looks great. The grass, the crops are wet in the morning. But when the sun comes over the horizon, the dew is gone. In the same way, Israel, your sacrifices, your burnt offerings, those things will disappear because you're not in it all the way. You're not devoting yourself, heart, soul, and mind to me. Israel first tried the religious route. That didn't work so hot. So chapter 10, verse 13, they try something different. 10, 13. But you have planted wickedness, Israel. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception because you have depended on your own strength. And on your own many warriors. The second way that Israel tried to respond to God's message of unfaithfulness is they tried to do it on their own. They tried to do it in their own strength. Self-reliant, independent. Okay, God, if you're going to remove your compassion, your protection, your provision, we will bolster our military. We will align ourselves with other militaries to protect our borders, to protect who we are as a people. We will do this on our own. 
And the problem with that is that it's a deception. That's what God says, not me. It's a deception to try to do this on your own. It's because you're uh, following into this, this evil and all these other things because you're never meant to Israel to do this on your own. You're supposed to rely on me as your protector and your provider. I am faithful. But they were deceived that they could do it on their own. Let's do a parallel switch. So Israel, now us, up here. Many times, we can try to do the same things. We can hear the message of God. If it's complacency, it doesn't matter. Whatever it might be. And we can hear God speak directly to us. We know what God yearns from us to be in relationship with Him. But instead of going down that road that He has for us, flying as though we were made to fly, what we can easily do is we can rely on religious obligations. We know that communion is incredibly important to do as a church in worship. It's biblical to do it every time we gather. But what it can end up turning out, at least it turns out for me, is many times I can rip the bread and dip it in the juice, eat it, and then walk out of here like it never even happened. I am just like the dew of the morning that when the sun comes up, walk out the door, I forgot all about it. God yearns for my loyal love back to Him. He yearns for me to acknowledge that He is my protector and my provider. But when I live into religion, or when we live into religion, we will miss out in the same way in our own strength. We can easily try to say, you know what, God? We've got this. We're just going to go ahead and do this on our own in our own dependence will be self-reliant. I try to do this as a father. Being a father is a big part of being a Christian for me. And being a father, I could say my kids go to VBS. Uh, my kids have a roof over their head. They have food to eat. They know about Jesus. They're a part of an amazing kids ministry. I can say that's good enough and become complacent. But then when the conviction roars up, I'll do it on my own. I will train those boys to be men of God. I will make them top-tier athletes. I will do this all on my own. And then what ends up happening is I get tuckered out. I get tired. I deceive myself. Whenever we try to do this in our own strength, we deceive ourselves because the gospel is the good news not of independence. The gospel is the good news of utter dependence on God. So the response can never be religion or in our own strength. The response must be something different. The good news is God never abandons his people. He doesn't leave us to figure this out on our own. God is a speaking God who speaks directly to us through the scriptures. In chapter 14, God is going to speak loudly to us, friends. He absolutely is. Come on now, good news. Chapter 14. Verses 1 through 3. Here we go. Chapter 14, 1 through 3. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, God, the fatherless find compassion. 
God gives us the great response to the message. He provides a way forward. It can be narrowed down as simply as this. Return. Return to the Lord. He says it two times. Return to the Lord. Repent. Whatever word you want to use, return means to stop living unfaithfully into relationship with other gods, whether they be all or complacency, doesn't matter. To return to the Lord means we're going to stop trying to fix the problem with religion. To return to the Lord means we're going to stop trying to do it in our own strength. To return to the Lord is to come back to Him, to turn to Him and say, God, please forgive me. And it's always important for us to name the sins that we have committed so we can get them out, so we never commit them ever again, and to share them with God so we can see Him forgive us of our sins in the most whole and complete way. Return to the Lord, Israel. Return to Him. Go back to Him. Return to the covenant from all the way back to Exodus. Live into the good news. You are meant to be His treasured possession. That He is the eagle that swoops down and protects you. He's making you into a royal priesthood. A holy nation. Return to the Lord. The message is clear. The response is straightforward. But how does God fix it? This is a question biblical scholars wrestle with when they come to passages like this. If Israel were to return to the Lord then, what would it have looked like? Would he would have prevented the Assyrians from toppling the northern kingdom? Would he have prevented it from the south as well? Would he have restored them into the Israelites? They were always meant to be in the covenant that goes all the way back to Exodus. Or would God allow those things to still happen as they did and then some later date bring them all back together so that someday in the future they could become an earthly kingdom, the kingdom of Israel? Is that God's plan? Is that how he's going to do it? Or is there another way that God wants to bring us back? That when we return to him, he has a plan to make us his people again. Is there some radical way that God wants to fix the problem of our unfaithfulness, giving our heart away to other gods? Is there some other way that God yearns to go to whatever ends, to do whatever it takes that he himself realizes on our own will never ever get, get it on our own? Is there some other way? Israel fell. Probably 10 of the tribes of the Israelites are not even known anymore. So God God clearly didn't solve it then. Even if they returned, this must not have been God's plan. God had some other radical way to do whatever it takes to bring us back when we return to him. A way in which he will do the heavy lifting all on his own. So 700 years from this time of Hosea speaking to the Israelites, the way that he speaks to us today, 700 years pass. And there's this fellow who very much stands in the tradition of the minor prophets. He certainly stood in the tradition of these minor prophets preaching powerful messages from the Bible. Messages that could only come from God. He is the same guy that in Acts who brings out these metaphors for your eye to see that he is truly a prophet of God who shows us through miracles of people who once were blind but now they can see. People who were not able to walk 
walk. And now they can walk. This guy grabs a group of people, Israelites, and said, be my disciples. Follow me where I go. Let me teach you how to live. This same guy looked at those disciples one day as he's looking at all of us right here, right now. Yes, Jesus Christ is looking at all of us, and this is exactly what he says. I am the way and the truth and the life. Hear this good news. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. The way that God fixes the problem, the way that God becomes the father to the fatherless, the way that God restores the broken relationship with his people is he does it his very self. Yes, God says, I will come down there in the flesh and I will dwell among you. I will be with you and I will be right there by your side and I will make it abundantly clear that the only way back to me upwards is to be with me here and now because I am the kind of God that's not far away from you. I am the God that gives of myself to be with with you. And that's not all. I'm the kind of God who will give you my own spirit to fill you. So I'm always with you all the time. Believers or not believers, God is here all the time. He is always with us. So returning to him, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life is to come to somebody who is already here. And the way that God comes to us is he comes to us through the cross. Yes, the cross is the place where he takes our unfaithfulness, our tendency to religious, our tendency to do it all on our own. He takes all of those things. Every single thing. He takes them at the cross and He crushes them and He sets us free to be the daughters and sons we were always meant to be because He came down to be by our side to fulfill the covenant from above and below. So we have no excuse. The only way to be with Jesus, to be with the Father who loves us, is to return to the One who's already here. It's good news for those of us who are religious. Those of us who are religious like that guy named Paul who was zealous of the law, who tried to live it out in every single way, so much so, he killed Christians. And then on this road to Damascus, on his way to kill more Christians because of his religious obligations, of course, he was doing them with pure heart and good motives, but he was wrong. And on his way to Damascus, right then and there, Jesus came near to him. He came to be with my side. And he says, Paul, I am here now. Return to me. And Paul does. He no longer kills Christians. He helps create thousands and millions and billions of more Christians through church planning and writing of the Scriptures. For those of us who are self who like to do it in our own strength, independent-minded people just like me. If that's who you are, there's a guy named Peter. Yes, Peter was going to do it all on his own. Jesus, you got nothing to worry about. No one's going to mess with you. I'll chop off the ear of anyone who comes at you. The same guy who out of fear, because if you live in your own strength, you will break. Out of fear, he denied Jesus three times in his darkest hour. Yet Jesus... Jesus came to Peter on the shore and he says, Peter, I am here. Return to me and feed my sheep. And Peter goes and he plants churches. 
That's not good enough for you? What about wild and crazy foolish people like myself? 15, 17 years ago, I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico at an altar call. The worst person you ever met, the kind of person you don't want to invite to a church community was me because you think lightning is going to strike or maybe I might do something radically insane. But I was in that place, that wild and foolish fellow in Albuquerque, all of a sudden broken down to tears knowing that wild parties will never fulfill the thing that only Jesus Christ can, the Father with compassion who wants to be with me. And in that moment, my life was radically changed because I returned to the Lord. I saw that he was already here and I embraced him all the way. And all I'm going to do now for the rest of my life is tell others the good news. But what about you? What about all of us in this room today? Those of us who were raised in this stuff, who believe in Jesus and are committed, but yet there are these moments of complacency where we do settle for less. What about those of us who are in that place? Today is a day of your salvation. Now is the hour. Return to Him because He's already here. What about those of us who've been away from the church? Maybe it's been years or months or decades. I don't know. You were raised in this stuff. You have good reasons to be upset with Christians and the church because we are hypocrites. I'm the biggest one of them all. But you've walked away and today you're here for whatever reason and you're here right now. Jesus Christ is here with you and he's saying, return to me because I'm already here. And then last but not least, of course, we want to be the kind of church where people who aren't Christians at all, who've given the finger to God, the kind of people who don't want to read the Bible, who are suspicious of everything Christian, if you're here today and that is you, today is a day of your salvation. Now is the time to say yes to Jesus Christ and join him in his mission to save the world. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, our simple prayer is this, that we will return to you right here and now because you are the way, the only way. You are the truth, and more importantly, you are the life. When we see you, Jesus, we see the Father. We thank you for the good news of your love in which you make all things right between us. You restore the relationship, not as a God who's far away, but the God who's already come near. I pray that we'll be the kind of church that believes in this good news, and when we sin, which we often will, that we'll return to you immediately. And more importantly, we'll be the kinds of people who share this good news with those that we meet. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. And last, Lord, one more thing. Give us courage and boldness that we don't have on our own. Amen.